Well done, good and faithful servant. Six of the most precious, valuable words that a Christian could ever hear. Just think about that stunning statement for a second. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you're a true born-again Christian, then Jesus, the perfect Son of God who was punished and killed on a cross, bearing the wrath of God on your and my behalf of the sins that we are personally guilty of. Then there he is, looking at you, knowing you better than your closest friend, as he lovingly welcomes you into your new eternal home. Well done, good and faithful servant. As you stand there clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ, treated and rewarded as if you yourself had lived Christ's perfect, sinless life. But for some, there's a category of people that would also call themselves Christians who will never hear this. On that day when they're to meet the Lord, they're going to hear something very different. Depart from me, I never knew you. Now I cannot think of anything more terrifying or tragic for someone to be so self-deceived, to think that they will one day hear, well done, but will instead hear the Lord say, depart from me, I never knew you. And the cause of this is a counterfeit Christianity. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, that's page 812. Let's pray before we read. Heavenly Father, please bless the preaching of your word this evening. We pray that what is spoken of is true and that you will protect us from any error or misapplication. May we not hear from a preacher this evening, but instead of you speaking through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 7 from verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
Now, as we know when reading the Bible, context is of critical importance, isn't it? Especially when we parachute into the middle of a chapter like we just have. So before we consider our passage this evening, let's remind ourselves of what's happening in our text. What we have just read are the words of Jesus. They come towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew chapter 5. And this well-known sermon is a powerful message dedicated to explaining how people can live a true Christian life that's pleasing to God, free from hypocrisy, full of love and grace, wisdom and discernment. The text that we're focusing on this evening comes towards the end of this message. And Jesus, just moments before, had been issuing a warning about the lives that people were living and about the road that people chose to follow. We'll just have a quick summary of that now. In verses 1 to 5, we see a warning against hypocrisy when judging others. In verse 13, Christ explains, and this is important, that the only way to salvation is by the narrow gate. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And of course, that narrow gate is through Christ himself. Then in verse 15, his sermon builds on these warnings as he provides a a caution regarding false teachers. He says, beware of false prophets, those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then it's here that we meet our text this evening that the Lord turns his attention from false teachers to false hearers, or as Matthew Henry puts it, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. And that's our verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what's going on here? We can, we can see in our passage, can't we, that we, we have a group of many people that are on this wide, easy road, heading for destruction that Jesus spoke about. And yet, they clearly thought that they were on the narrow road leading to eternal life. So how does that happen? Have they somehow got lost or have they taken a wrong turn? How does someone become so deluded and self-deceived about something that is so important? The most important thing. Well, we're going to look at that. But before we answer that this evening, let's be certain about what is not happening here. Clearly, these people thought that they were Christians. They were acting as Christians were during this time. They mentioned two sign gifts that were common in that era. They were casting out demons, prophesying in the name of the Lord. And in their words, they were doing many mighty works in the Lord's name. But yet, the Lord did not know them. They were not Christians. Okay, so you may be thinking, well Dave, they were were doing all these Christian things. They could have been regular attenders to worship. 
Maybe they knew some scripture, used Christian words. So what's happened? Were they Christians that fell away? Have they somehow lost their faith? Is it possible for a Christian to lose their salvation? Well, I believe that the Bible has a clear answer to that question. No. It's impossible for a true born-again Christian to lose their salvation. Christians are saved by grace through faith. We did nothing to earn our salvation in the first place and we can do nothing to maintain it. He who began a good work in us will carry it out unto completion. We've said before, haven't we? In fact, the only thing that we contribute towards the whole of the gospel message is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. If it was possible to lose our salvation, then we all would, because none of us have any righteousness of our own apart from Christ. I was recently reminded of a quote by R.C. Sproul. He said, when God writes our names in the Lamb's book of life, he doesn't do it with an eraser handy. He does it for eternity. And as Paul Washer once said, if a person professes faith in Christ and yet falls away or makes no progress in godliness, it does not mean that he or she has lost his salvation. It reveals that they were never truly born again in the first place. Now I'm aware that there will be some listening to this, maybe online, that would not agree with this. The Arminian free will and that of many of modern day cults today believe that it's absolutely possible to lose or to forfeit your salvation. So let me quickly provide some evidence from the Bible as to why I believe that this view is wrong and unhelpful. Without a biblical understanding of assurance, a born-again Christian is left with the idea that their salvation is like a spiritual game of musical chairs, which then dangerously introduces works into the gospel. Works then becomes the root of salvation rather than the fruit, which is unbiblical and a false gospel. We know, don't we, that the idea that someone can lose their salvation robs a believer of their eternal security. And the enemy loves to encourage this kind of discouragement. There's a reason why we call it eternal salvation. John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30 I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And then in our verse this evening, Jesus never, I used to know you. No. He says, I never knew you. So if it's clear, and I think it is, if true born-again Christians cannot lose their salvation, then something else is clearly going on in our passage this evening. And there's a, a reason why I'm being careful to keep adding the word true to the word Christian here. And of course, it's the case of false converts. False converts that are a product of a false gospel, a counterfeit Christianity. And we know this, don't we? If you've ever taken a, a holiday in Spain, you'll recognise the image of these men standing on street corners, selling sunglasses and watches. Upon a glance, these silver Gucci watches may look like the greatest bargain in the history of the world. 20 euros for a watch that costs 500 pounds here in the UK. Oh wow, the holiday maker thinks. Then a couple of days go by, a little bit of exposure to the sun, some sun cream and the shower. And before you know it, the silver Gucci watch is now called Uchi because the G's fallen off and it's turned a funny shade of green. It may have looked like the real thing, but under testing, it's proved to be a worthless fake. And the Bible teaches us, doesn't it, that it's very possible to look like a Christian on the outside and yet have an unconverted heart of stone on the inside, heading closer and closer to destruction one day at a time. What a frightening thought that is. That the most sincere believer can be sincerely wrong if the object of their faith is placed in the wrong place. The Bible's clear. There's only one way to be saved, and that's by grace through faith in the blood of Christ. We heard last week, didn't we? We're not saved by the, the positive feelings that we may have towards the church, the Christian faith, or towards Jesus. We can see that in our text. These people that the Lord never knew had affections towards the Lord, a warmth, an interest in spiritual things. And how do we know that? Well, look at how they address him. Lord, Lord. In the Hebrew culture, this was the way in which you address someone warmly and affectionately. Abraham, Abraham. Moses, Moses. Martha, Martha. And here in our text, they acknowledge the Lord. They believe he is real as they cry out, Lord, Lord. And yet we can see that a religious affection, no matter how warm, does not provide salvation. And we know this to be true, don't we? Mention Jesus to a Muslim. Ah, yes, they'll say. We love Isa. He's our greatest prophet, they will say. We love him. Talk to a Mormon. Ah, oh, Jesus, the perfect example of how we need to live. For false Christian converts who maybe once raised a hand, responded to an altar call, maybe repeated a prayer, live in a Christian country, some kind of confidence in a religious decision that has borne no evidence of fruit. Depart from me. Get away from me. I never knew you. Can you imagine the horror of being so wrong at the final judgment. No more time. No more opportunities to repent. Coming towards the judgment throne, expecting to meet Jesus as our closest friend, but instead meeting him as a holy, righteous judge. 
Hasi Sproul notes, it's not a question of whether you know of God. Does he know you? Have you been adopted into his family through the blood of Christ? Have you been reconciled to God the Father through his Son? Because this is the only way. To help try and illustrate this, imagine a a man that lives here in Eastbourne. Someone that confesses to love the Queen. The kind of man that would centre the Christmas events around the Queen's speech. Has his family gather around the telly. You could go into his kitchen drawer and there'll be some tea towels celebrating all of the various royal weddings that we've had in recent times. Maybe a a china plate sitting in the front room wall with a picture of Buckingham Palace. This man would have held the biggest party at the recent Jubilee event. All the neighbours would have come round and remarked on how much this man seemed to love the Queen. But what would happen if he was to travel to Windsor Castle for a trip? As he approached the gates, a guard would meet him and ask what his business is here. I thought I'd come and see the Queen, he'd say. Is she expecting you, the guard would ask. What's your name? And as the guard shakes his head, the man will suddenly realise that no matter what his affection was towards the Queen, it holds no power. It holds no weight. He has no relationship with her. She does not know him. This is the same thing with God. It's possible to know of many biblical facts. To wear a cross, to mark yourself down on a form as a Christian and yet for God not to know you. Not as a Christian. A relationship with God starts through being forgiven and given new birth as a gift by grace through faith on Jesus for your sins. It's by fleeing to him and having his blood applied to you personally. Salvation is exclusively through faith in Christ. And anything else, including a faith in your own works, is false. It's as fake as that green Uchi watch from Spain. And this is key to us understanding what has gone so wrong as they are told to depart. They've been holding on to a false gospel, which we will see in a few moments. I'm sure you can't think of a more terrible and devastating thing than this. Here are a people that have just been honouring the Lord with their lips. People that may have made false professions of faith. Cultural Christians, people that have never repented. People that have never truly put their faith in Christ. Unregenerate unconverted people we've got to have this be a lesson to us in the uselessness of a a mere outward profession of christianity because we know the day of judgment is going to reveal everything the authenticity of the faith of people who had a reputation for being christians will be tested and the rottenness of some people's religion will be laid bare and exposed For it's one thing, isn't it, to to hear the gospel and to be warmed by the idea that salvation is near. And yet, if the blood of Christ has not been applied to you as an individual, then salvation might as well be a billion miles away. Salvation isn't achieved by learning enough theology or by memorising doctrine. There are universities in every nation with Bible scholars who confess themselves that they're not born-again Christians. They've just got a fascination with the Bible. 
Does Satan himself not know the Bible better than any man? Salvation comes by application. I'm sure many of you would have heard there was a popular book that sold millions of copies years ago called The Secret, which professed to explain the secret meaning of life. It should come of no great surprise that those that read it finished the book none the wiser. It was chapters and chapters of smoke and mirrors. But the Christian faith is not like this. We're not trying to crack a top secret code to get into heaven. We're not searching scripture for a hidden password before being allowed in. Salvation is offered as a free gift by the one who earned it. Salvation is offered as a free gift to sinners, not, to, not as the wages for the life of the self-righteous. It's a gift applied by the Spirit. A faith given by God himself. Eyes to see, ears to hear, a new heart to receive. All the work of God. Pray for that. If this is not yours, pray for that. So if these false converts in our text this evening were self-deceived, how can we be so sure that we are not deceived as well? Well, verse 22 in our passage tells us exactly where everything has gone wrong. They were not people trusting in Christ. Look at their plea. Look at their plea. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What are they doing? The gospel tells us through the law that we come to the cross completely naked and empty handed. We are guilty sinners. Our plea is guilty and that of spiritual bankruptcy. We looked at that this, the other Tuesday, didn't we? It's how Jesus starts this whole sermon with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn their sin. Blessed are the meek and those who hunger and thirst righteousness. A true Christian is someone that knows their hopeless state apart from Christ. But look at how this type of person approaches Jesus. Haven't we done mighty works in your name? We have prophesied. We've cast out demons. Look at how we have served you, Jesus. Now it's payback time. Open the door. This is the same old story repackaged over and over again. It's a counterfeit, works-based gospel. Is this your plea? Will you dare come face to face with Jesus and begin to point at all that you've done? Thanks for dying on the cross, Jesus, but I don't need that. Look at these mighty works done in your name. Lord, Lord, did I not have a direct debit set up for you uh, in the food bank in your name? Did I not go out and help my elderly neighbour in your name? If you're so foolish, you'll hear the same thing. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. It's such an offence to the cross. Do we really think that the creator of the universe needs anything from us? 
That he is somehow indebted to us and will therefore be obliged to grant us eternal life because of our own efforts. To deny the only acceptable payment for our sin is and ends in disaster. It's a rejection of Jesus. It it tries turning the cross into a ladder where it's possible to climb upon it ourselves. And that's a lie. I know I've said it before and I say it again as I can't think of a better illustration. If you're relying on any good works or by hedging your bets by having faith in various other things as well, then I say this to you as lovingly as I can. It's like getting into a plane and jumping out thinking that you've got a parachute and actually all you have is a brick in your backpack. You've tragically put your faith in something that's going to eternally condemn you forever. And if you were to die right now in this state, then the reality of what that means is so, so serious and unbearable. You may be a a parachute expert. You may be able to explain how they work and talk through the various brands and colours. But if you do not have a parachute strapped onto your back when it's time to jump out of a plane, then it's irrelevant. The parachute must be applied to an individual by having one on your back. The gospel must be applied. Now for some people, I know that this isn't easy. If you've been putting this off, you may have your own reasons for doing so. Maybe to come to Christ in repentance and faith means that you will have to confess that you've been wrong in in what you've believed previously. Maybe you've been involved in a false religion with a false gospel or sucked in by false teachers who do not teach about salvation. Maybe you've been attending an unbiblical church where you only ever hear about how much God wants to to bless you and you never hear about sin or its consequences. Maybe you thought that you were saved because you were raised in a Christian family or that you, you too had a false confidence in your good works. But if you truly understand the danger that you were in, you would put any pride to one side and you would flee to Christ right now because his blood is priceless verse 21 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven so as we draw to a close what is the will of the father with john chapter 6 verse 40 For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now this isn't a hard concept to understand, is it? Salvation is yours when you look and believe in the Son. When your plea is guilty, but you are truly known and covered by the one who is perfectly innocent. If you're not a true Christian, then come to him this evening. Look upon the precious son for for salvation and to cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray.